Good morning, everybody. Today, our scripture is Matthew 27, 57 through 28, 6. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus's body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. All right, thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you again. I just saw you a minute ago, and I'm back to see you again. Um, okay, so um, this sermon and one more, and we're done with Matthew. Um, and as, yeah, I know, it's a big deal. As, as we go through, as we've been going through Matthew, one of the big things I want to do is point out all the different characters that Matthew specifically brings out um, because of their relation to his audience, Matthew's audience is first century Second Temple Jewish Christians who think a certain way and live a thir- certain way and have a certain theology. Um, and Matthew is meeting them where they are with everything that he does here. So we are going to do a few things. We're going to talk about this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. We're going to talk about um, some of the festivals and what was going on and, and how Matthew's writing sort of brings out some of the festival um, things. And then we're going to talk about the resurrection and look at it sort of in a new light. Um, it's not Easter, so I'm not going to go like all resurrection, the whole thing. Um, but we're going to go pretty deep into it. Um, and last time I got started, I looked at my watch and it was time to stop. So I'm, but it's second service again, straight on through till morning. Let's go. Um, Okay, so let me open us up in a word of prayer, and then we're going to start right here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask that you would meet us here, that uh, um, we would be um, your people this morning, not our own, not a people of of the countries in which we live or the places that we are from. I pray that we would be your people, that we would come together under King Jesus. That would be our identity. Um... And I pray that you would meet us here and you would speak to us about what, what it is that we are doing here. The role that we have to play, um, how you have called us to be separate and called out and different. Um, reveal that to us. Um, put us back on mission. Um, speak through me. Allow me to be present in these words that, that I have to say. 
this morning. I pray that all of us um, would, be, would be filled up with exactly what we need. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Okay, so there's this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. And um, he goes, after Jesus dies, he goes to the Pharisees and the scribes. Um, no, I'm sorry. He goes to the Roman centurions and to Pilate, and he asks for the body of Jesus. And his story is right here. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. That's an important part. We're going to get to that. Um, going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, placed it in his own new tomb. We'll go to that too. Uh, that he had cut out of the rock. And he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene and, and the other Mary, talk about that. Why, don't, why, why is she the other Mary? Every time I read that, I'm like, that's un- unfortunate. <laughs> Mary Magdalene and that other Mary were, were sitting there opposite the tomb. Um, so um, I want to talk about this guy. So there's this guy, Joseph, and he's there. Um, we don't have a lot of details other than where he's from and that he's a follower of Jesus from Matthew. If you flip over to Luke, um, so if you have your, turn on your Bibles and flip over to Luke um, chapter 23. Um, it says, now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Um, this group of Jewish men who ruled over, they were a mixture of scribes, of Pharisees and of Sadducees. And they ruled over sort of everything having to do with the temple. They were the leaders of the religion at the time. Um, they were the ones that killed Jesus, that, that invented um, accusations against him, lied about him, and got him killed. Um, and it tells us that Joseph was a member of this council. However, it says he was a good and upright man. He had not consented to their decision and action. So he was against them. Um, and from what I know and from, how, from what I know of how this works, this means that, that the head, um, the head, the, the, the chief priests that called this meeting likely would not have included him or any other, any other dissenters in the decision. They would have called this meeting as they did in the middle of the night, this illegal trial, um, and not invited people like Joseph of Arimathea and sort of stacked the jury, if you will, and made these decisions um, without dissent, um, without having someone there who was good and right. So what we have here, um, let's go a little farther. Um, he came from the Judean town of Arimathea. And he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. This is a big message here. Um, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He understood um, that the kingdom of God was close. Uh, Matthew tells us again that he was a follower of Jesus. Um, oh, had himself become a disciple of Jesus. He believed the things that Jesus taught about the kingdom. That it was here. Um, real quick, quick review. What are the three elements of a kingdom? There is a, a, a king. And what else? Land. And people, subjects, citizens, the three elements of a kingdom. Um, And he's waiting for all of these things to align. Who is our king? What is the kingdom? Who are citizens of this kingdom? We know now Jesus is the king. We are citizens of the kingdom, the church. Um, All those who are followers of Jesus. And land now is all of the earth is is God's land. Um, And so this man was trying to put this together, but Jesus had died. um, And so he probably assumed that Jesus was not the Messiah because if you died, you weren't the Messiah. No one believed the Messiah would die. And if you died, you had failed as the Messiah. So he was likely looking for another, but he's waiting now for the kingdom of God to be revealed. And while he's there, it says at the bottom, verse 61, it says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary um, were sitting there opposite the tomb. Um, So this man... 
And he's, he's, he's obviously wealthy. He's rich. He has his own tomb. You didn't have your own tomb in the ancient, unless you were very wealthy. Um, so he has his own tomb. He's a part of the Sanhedrin. He's powerful. He's wealthy. He is everything you want to be in the ancient world. These women are everything you don't want to be in the ancient world. First off, females. So you don't have your own rights. You're not protected by the states. You are Jewish. So you are uh, an oppressed people. Um, and they had, they had no rights at all. Nobody would have listened to him. Yet they come together to take care of Jesus, whose teachings they believed in. And they're watching over Jesus. Now, he comes, the reason he comes and asks for the body is because he knows, um, because first off, he's a righteous and upright man, according to Luke. And he knows the law, like Deuteronomy 21, that says, if someone guilty of capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must, leave the body, uh, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day. Um, the day ended when the sun went down. It was the beginning of the new day when the sun went down. Um, also, it's doubly important because the very next day was the Sabbath. So they had to get Jesus off the cross because they couldn't do it the next day. And they wanted to both be righteous people, be faithful to the Torah, to the way God had called them to live in this world. Um, all of them, this man and, and the women, wanted to, be, wanted to be fully righteous people and faithful to God and God's commands and God's laws. And they wanted to both pull the body down to respect this law and because the next day was the Sabbath. Um, they knew the Roman law was that if a body wasn't taken down, the Romans weren't going to take it down. They were going to leave it there and let the dogs deal with it. They would likely lower the cross and just let the dogs eat the body. And these women were never going to allow anything to happen to the body of Christ. It's quite beautiful, their devotion to him. Even in his death, they keep visiting the grave and caring for his body. Um, incredibly intense visual. And um, let me... Let me show you the picture that Matthew paints of the Pharisees at this time. It says the next day, um, the next day, which would be the Sabbath, um, it says uh, the one after preparation day, he even goes out of his way to tell you the the Sabbath, um, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate, sir, they said, we remember that while he was alive, that the deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. So while there's these righteous remnants running around, like this man, Joseph, and these women, Mary and the other Mary, um, while they're running around being righteous people and trying to do the right thing in the, in the face of terrible circumstances. And they're, and they're keeping the Sabbath. These Pharisees who tried to have Jesus and his disciples arrested for not observing the Sabbath are working on the Sabbath, trying to get um, their lives all secured and nailed to the ground. They're covering their own butts on the Sabbath. Like they are out there breaking their own laws because they ne- it was never about laws. It was never about morals. It was never about the right thing. Oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes it's about maintaining power and image and the way that they want to be. Because this is what happens when human people rule over human people. We have been given a better king. And generation after generation sees this same thing. That it is never really. You can say it's about laws and about people doing the right thing and being, being good. and being, But it never is. These, there's, there's one righteous guy, this remnant, this Joseph of Arimathea, who's trying to do the right thing and being pushed aside um, and being ignored, but, he, but he's keeping his head down and he's trying to do the right thing in the midst of all of this, standing up to them and speaking the truth to them. And they're doing everything that they can to continue their oppression of this man who threatened their power. 
And so what we see is look at the very next day. Um, the women after the Sabbath, so they waited. So they observed the Sabbath. The, the, they're, they're loyal to the Torah and they're waiting for the Sabbath to end so that they can go finish embalming Jesus' body. It says after the Sabbath on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Um, what we have in Matthew that is probably very important for his audience, uh, Second Temple Jewish Christians, who are just trying now to grapple with this new reality, this new world that they have been born into um, through the resurrection of Christ. This new reality of the veil is rent. Um, we are all now equals. All the separations are gone. There's Gentiles confessing while Jesus is on, on the cross still, just freshly dead, confessing that Jesus is Lord. And they can't do that because he's the Jewish Lord. He's our Lord, right? Um, and so now the veil is rent. It's equal in the temple now between Gentiles, women, and people. The um, sort of the... The veil has fallen, the, 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 the racial segregations have fallen, the patriarchy is falling as, as we have these women rising up and being there and in the church, they're leaders in the church. And what we find um, is this thing that's really hard for the, early, for the early Christians to deal with. And I imagine Matthew's church, the Matthew church that he's leading and he's writing to, I imagine they have a hard time coming to terms with, wait a minute, our status in society no longer gives us an edge now we are equals. And he's like, yes. For instance, it looks like this. Joseph of Arimathea, wealthy, powerful, rich, coming together with the lowly, uh, the, these women. And they're working together to serve Jesus as equals. There's a picture that Matthew is painting that he wants his people to see. That the separations are gone, that they are over, and that all are one in Christ. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in the same boat. So the Sabbath ends and they go back to the tomb. Now, the Sabbath ends um, what they were celebrating, the, the celebration of Passover. Um, Passover, it was the festival where they had been celebrating uh, being set free from their oppressors and entering into a new life with a new king because the blood of the lamb was sort of spilled to protect them from death. Like it goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. Like they're over this terrible oppressor king and they are set free because a, a lamb's blood was spilled and put there and, and over the door and then they are set free because of this, right? Um, death doesn't touch them. It has no sting and they're able to pass on through. This is the last thing that happens before they're set free. So every year they celebrate the Passover and as they're celebrating the Passover, we talked about it last week, Jesus is being crucified. His blood is being poured out. He is being killed and then he's laid in the tomb and he's dead. Um, and then the Sabbath happens and then there's a new festival starting. On the next day, it's called the Feast of First Fruits. Now, the first Feast of First Fruits in the Jewish tradition celebrates the, the, um, uh, the barley harvest when it comes up out of the ground. Um, and it's sort of this huge festival that remembers God's providence for them in the wilderness, God's providence for them in exile, and how every time they have been in need, God has given them what they need. And here they celebrate it in the form of barley coming up out of the ground, what they need, their sustenance, rising up out of the ground for them. It is a time when they would celebrate, um, uh, they would celebrate a God who provides for them. 
Because there's this miracle that when they take this little thing and they stick it in the dirt, um, water falls from the sky, um, from the dome, and God opens the doors, right? And it falls down on the sky, and, and it comes up out. And this is how they view everything. And it's all this miracle of life that God gives them year after year after year. And when the food comes up out of the ground, they now know they will live. What comes up out of the ground proves to them that they will continue to live They will continue to be God's people and to exist. And the way you celebrate this is you go to the temple and you read the prophecy of the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel stands in this field, this canyon sort of filled with dry bones, and then then these bones come back to life. And so you would read this passage on this day, the first day of the first fruits. It says, this is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. And then you will know that I am the Lord. And this is the verse that they're proclaiming the day before the resurrection. They're in the temple and they're singing these songs and they're reading these stories and they're crying out that God would breathe life into the things that are dead. They're thanking God that life has come to them in sustenance out of the ground so that they continue to live. And so the next day, the way that they would celebrate it is they would go out to the fields and they would gather up the first 10% that came up out of the ground, the first fruits. And they gather up the 10% and they take it to the temple. They bind it, they take it to the temple and they sing worship songs to God and they give it to the temple to donate, to feed people who are in need as if to say, thank you for this, for the food, for what has come out of the ground. We, we bring it to you um, and offer it back to you as if to say, we trust you will continue to do this. The reason it's called the first fruits is because everything else that comes after it will look just like it. And so they take it and they give it to the temple. Now, I want you to imagine with me the act of faith that this would be. The first crops that come out that are edible out of the ground, you're going to rip them out of the ground and like take them and give them away and offer them, maybe even just burn them on the altar for aroma incense for God, okay? And you're going to do this when the very next day there could be a fire that burns the rest of your field down. The very next day a flood could the floods could, waters could rise up and wipe it all away. A storm could come and destroy your plants, a tornado, anything could happen and that food's gonna be gone. And the last thing you wanna do in the ancient world when you literally survive off what you can grow, the last thing you're gonna do is take your food and burn it for some reason. This is an act of faith. This is an act of the people saying, I trust you and I give out of the scarcity that we have. Because sometimes the only response to scarcity in your life is generosity. And sometimes it's a way of saying, I only have a little. Father, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to make an act of sacrifice to show you that I trust you and be generous to someone else. Me and my wife have had to practice this several times throughout life. When you get to the end of it and there's not much and the only response you have is, well, what little we have? Why don't we just whatever. Just give it to God. Let God have it and do his thing. Somebody needs it, give it to them. Uh, This is a way God's people, this is a, this is a, uh, a sort of a liturgical move that the people would make to proclaim their trust, that they trust what God is doing for them, what he has always done, he will continue to do, that their life is not sustained from their own hands. It's sustained from God, okay? So this was something that they would do. Now, Um, let me see where we're going next. So 
all of this coincides with the resurrection. Imagine that day when all of this stuff is being brought in and then you have Jesus' disciples who are still stunned by his brutal execution. Um, and they would stand there and listen to this story of Ezekiel about him proclaiming life coming back into dry bones. And I imagine that would have hit them pretty hard. And, and they were just kind of weepy about this whole thing. Um, and then the very next day they come back and they start hearing wild rumors about the tomb being empty. And there's like 500 people who are saying, I saw Jesus alive. And they're hearing all kinds of bizarre stories about what happened through the evening. I imagine celebrating the festival of the first fruits and living through this and going through what they just went through, all of this would have just been like this theological, like massive allegory and metaphor for everything that God was doing. It's almost like that year God joined them in the festivals, right? It's like they've been rehearsing for 1800 years as if they were looking forward to something, right? Like as if God every year says, you're gonna do this and you're gonna do this and you're gonna do over and over and over. And then one day, and then one day you're gonna recognize what you've been doing all along when I join you in the festival. And when you sacrifice your final lamb, Jesus is gonna be sacrificed and he's gonna say, this is over, it's finished, it's done. And then when you bring your first fruits out of the ground, uh, I'm gonna send back the first fruits. I'm gonna take part in all of this. Now, this brings us to a passage that we talked about that we skipped over last week that we didn't talk about. And some of you have likely been thinking about it this week. It's a little piece that Matthew interjects um, at the moment Jesus dies that is really weird. Let's talk about it, shall we? It goes like this. Uh, it's at the moment Jesus died, it says, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open, and the bodies of many whole, uh, holy people who had died were raised to life, and they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. First off, what the heck? <laughs> it's like a zombie movie, right? Um, so I, I have... I know, okay, so let's start with this. Um, let's ask some questions about it. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of them. Why is Matthew the only one who talks about this? It's kind of a big deal, I feel. Um, second, um, what are we to make of all of this? Like, what is he trying to say? Is he actually telling us what happened? Is he being allegorical? I talked to a professor this week about it, um, a professor of theology, and he says, I think God is, I, th I, th I think this is sort of a theophany about the first fruits of bringing the first fruits of resurrection. Um, and, and so there's all this like debate about it. And, and here's the thing. Um, I know you guys, and I know a lot of you are skeptics, and I know a lot of you are like, there's no way that happened. This is a metaphor and an allegory. Let's, but let's talk about this, shall we? I, I want to kick some doors open for you, okay? Just, just for fun. Ready? Okay. Now, yes, there's a lot of debate over what this is supposed to mean. Why is Matthew the only one that tells this story? I would start off by saying this. Um, a message in the ancient world is determined by its audience. There's no reason for Mark, Luke, or John to tell the story because it didn't have any meaning to their audience. It had zero meaning to their audience. It wouldn't even have been impressive because they had a lot of stories like it. <laughs> like they're Gentiles, Romans. Have you read their stories? Um, like it wouldn't have meant anything to them. Uh, it means everything to Matthew. Um, because of the first fruits, it means everything to his audience. Second, I would point out um, church history traditions. Um, up until about the sixth century, this passage had a lot of meaning. There's this, um, what is it? The Gospel of Nicodemus, sixth century or so. It's like a pseudo, pseudopigrapha, they call it, like a pseudo writer, someone I'm going to write as Nicodemus. Um, and they, he, he like 
unfolds this huge essay about this passage and its beauty and its meaning for us. So look that up sometime. Um, second, that was point one. All those points were one point. Um, second, um, there have already been two other resurrection stories in Matthew. Like what's one more, right? Okay. Um, was that convincing? No, okay. Number three, um, if you're really worried that people are gonna think you're weird for believing this, it's too late and you're already super weird for the other things that you believe, all right? Don't worry about that, okay? Just don't worry about it. Um, uh, next, um, the reason you would mention this part, uh, and they appeared to many people, the reason you would say that in ancient writing is because presumably those people are still there in Matthew's audience. And you would ask them. It's the same reason later on he references a rumor going around about the disciples stealing the body. And he tells you where that came from in the passage we just read a few minutes ago. He says, and they still circulate that rumor till today because they're still alive. These people that were here, some of them are still alive and you could go ask them. It's the same reason Paul later says, and he appeared to 500 people as if to say, go ask him. Marge, you were there. Like, right? Like, that's, this is what he's doing. Um, so it's sort of this like nod that they kind of agree that this happened. But I want to I wanna pause all you enlightened people for a second who are thinking scientifically and all that. Um, I want to take you back and then I want you to think about for a second the first fruits and what this means for Matthew's audience because it's massive. Because first off, it says uh, the tombs broke open, but it doesn't say the dead people came into Jerusalem until after the resurrection, which means it's on the day of the first fruits when everyone is bringing all the first fruits into the temple, Okay. So God is taking part in the first fruits and he raises Jesus and he's like, 10%. Right? Like, it fits with what he's doing. Okay? I'm gonna leave that there and we're gonna keep going. Okay, now, because it makes, it makes sense when you put this whole thing in the scope of that, all of it seems to make sense. But the reason I think all of this is important is because um, the ancient people believed that there was a reason for resurrection. Um, in modern... Okay, so one of the problems with modern, I would say, one of the problems with modern evangelicalism is, is, that, is that we use, and this is going to sound weird for a second, okay, just relax. Um, we, we only tell the story of the cross as if it's everything. I want to push back against that a little bit, and I'm going to say, because the way I was raised, um, we only ever told the story of the cross, um, and we even sang a song, born to die, like that he's born to die, that man might live. Like he was literally born so that he would go to the cross. And we negate everything that happened in his life and everything that happened after the cross to the ascension. As if the ascension itself wasn't a, didn't have profound meaning about Jesus becoming king and ascending to the throne. Now, um, we talked about that and we will talk about it because that's how Acts, the book of Acts kicks off. Um, so let's, let's talk about this for a second. Oftentimes, um, hold on, I'm so far away from my notes. Okay, the cross oftentimes is, we talk, we talk about the cross because we talk about it as if it gives us, we say it, that's what gives us sort of our ticket to heaven. I'm not gonna go into atonement theories today where I have plans to talk about that in a few months. Um, as if like the, the cross, the point of it is to give you a ticket to heaven and out of hell and escape and that that's the whole point of it. So that's why we tell everything. So it's the center of everything. And then the miracles of Jesus, the whole point of those was like magic tricks to convince people that Jesus is God. When, when the early Christians understood 
The miracles that Jesus performed had two purposes. It was restoration to the, way, to the world that God wants is, and is working towards and establishing. And second, they always, always, always were connected with reconciling people together. Um, reconciling lepers who had been kicked out back with their families, back into community with the Jewish people, reconciling the Jews with the Gentiles, healing people everywhere to reconcile them and restore them to the community that they were born to be in, the community of God's people, okay? There was a reason for all of them, but we just kind of look at it as like, oh, there were fancy magic tricks to get people to believe. Um, And then the teachings of Jesus, they're mildly important because, I mean, our ultimate goal is to die and fly away. And so the teachings, I guess, are just going to sustain us while we're here. And we're going to do our best to live by these things. They don't really matter all that much because ultimately it's all going to burn anyway. And so the teachings don't have a huge purpose. The whole purpose is to fly away. So the teachings become less important. And, and so Christians, evangelicalism has, has honestly cared a lot less about the teachings of Jesus. We don't take the Sermon on the Mount very literally at all anymore. Um, that's one of the things we've been trying to correct and fix. Um, um, and so the resurrection at the end, it really has no meaning. It, it was just sort of a, um, sort of a, like a, a happy ending because you told the story to your kids and it ended bad. And you're like, no, 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 he comes back. Like it's a happy ending. Don't be sad. He comes back and then he's just gone. He whisks away. Um, but the whole thing is this. However, that is not an accurate way to tell the story of Jesus. Jesus is establishing a new people in this world to bring about the world that he had always intended to bring about. God is in the business of restoring all things, not abandoning all things. So let me show you some pictures from church history. These, um, almost all of these are from like pre-sixth century and they're ancient depictions of the resurrection because I want to give it some, some meaning, interject some meaning into it like it's supposed to have. So this is an ancient... Um, ossuary, an ossuary. So first off, when someone dies, they're, they are laid in a tomb like Joseph of Arimathea's. And once they've decayed, you take their bones and put them in an ossuary and you carry them apparently around. Um, and so we have a depiction. This is a follower of Jesus. We have a, a, um, a depiction of the crucifixion of Christ. And over here, we have the resurrection of Christ. However, let me zoom in on this a little bit. You have Jesus coming out of the tomb, turning around and bringing two people out of the tomb with him. Adam and Eve. You're like, it doesn't look like Adam and Eve. The reason I know it's Adam and Eve is because this painting is everywhere in the ancient world. Um, Jesus turning around, pulling out Adam and Eve. This is painted in in ancient church gathering sites, on ossuaries, um, all kinds of different places. Here's another one. Jesus turning around, grabbing the hand of Adam and Eve and bringing them out of the tomb Let's keep going. I go all day. There's tons and tons and tons of them. And, he's, and so this means something. It means something that we have rarely thought about in modern evangelicalism. It, it has massive implications for how the ancient people viewed the world in which um, they lived. Um, for the early Christians, the resurrection... Uh, was vital. They believed that the resurrection of Jesus was central, was the central message of Christianity, that it was the central message. Um, uh, it was for them the first time that a human being had once again been placed where humanity was created to be, restored, serving. Do you remember 
um, the old cosmic hierarchy back in January. We talked three weeks on this. Um, The way God intends for people to be. God himself as king ruling over his people um, who serve God by ruling over the world and having um, authority and dominion over the world um, in a way that represents and reflects God. They are the image of God placed here as in an ancient world, as in the ancient like mindset of idols. So like um, to, to guide it forward into its flourishing, um, to worship God in every aspect of their life, to keep things the way God intended them to be at peace and reconciled to God. And the fall of man would be as in Mankind joining earth in this like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not serving God as king. I'm serving myself. Um, it's Israel declaring, we want a human king, right? We want to be just like all the other nations. And God says, I called you out of that. I mean, the name Adam, we talked about this in our creation on, uh, on, our, on, our, um, on our creation evolution reasoning series. Um, the name Adam comes from the, the word Adama, which is the Hebrew word for the ground. So Adam was pulled out of the ground, made out of dust and formed out of dust and raised above the ground, given a different status, a different office, a different place of being than the rest of creation. In the same way that Abraham was called out of the nations and Israel was made to be different and called out ones among the nations and to guide the nations back to God and bring the world to flourishing. And in the resurrection of Jesus, the early Christians believed that the hierarchy was restored that there was a human being once again in the place where they were supposed to be. And now we have achieved, God has achieved what creation has been moaning and groaning for, for, for God's glory to be known and for things to be set back the way they were supposed to be so that creation can be reconciled and restored to God once again, a world made whole so that we can once again dwell in our garden of Eden kind of scenario, right? Like this is the picture of the scriptures, the whole thing. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, but Christ, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Paul reminds them of the first fruits prayers, that all of this goes back to the first fruits. Um, the prayers that they had prayed for 1,500 years. And he says, God told you that when he returned as our king once again, he said, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. And so he has. It's not just that Jesus has been brought back to life. It's that humanity has been restored. And God is now going to form a people called the church who live in this new way as Christ's image in this world, who reject all other human kings and all other rulers and all other governments. And we ourselves are a surrogate kingdom in this world calling people to join us in the worship and the following of our king. And we have citizens in every nation in the world who serve the same king. Mankind has been given back our vocation. This is what Christianity is all about. I'm sorry if you haven't heard this. Like this is the center of what the early Christians believed, that we are a part of something that would eventually bring and bless the world, bless the nations and bring all of creation back to God. And instead we spend too much time um, separating nation from nation and nation when our entire goal is to bring everyone together under Christ. That we are a people who do not belong And we will take part in the reconciliation, the restoration of this entire 
world to Jesus. Because God is setting thing to right, things to right again. That is what God is in the business of doing. We are resurrection people. We are not people who hold on to the idea of a disembodied escapism. That is Gnosticism. Our goal is not to die and fly away while the world burns. That is medieval errant theology. Our goal, a God's goal, what God is intending to do with us is not disembodied disengagement. It is the embodiment of God in this world and engaging in the restoration of this world. That is what we are here for. And just as Jesus coming out of the tomb grabs Adam and Eve and puts them back where they're supposed to be, the early Christians knew that this is what we are doing. The things that are broken, we are restoring. The, thing, the people who are sick, we are bringing healing to. Those who are lost, we are finding them and bringing them back. Those who are lonely, receive family and community here. All those who are outcasts, who have been viewed as, as outlaws and rejects and deviants, belong at our table, sitting with our king, eating our bread and drinking our wine. We are one family. That's what this is. Yes, all right. Almost forgot you were all mostly white for a second. Now, okay. It's the, uh, it's the crucifixion that reveals that we need a new king. This is what the crucifixion actually does. It reveals that we need a new king. It, it displays the sins of all the earthly nations and the temple and God, even Jesus' disciples on display on that cross. And it is on the cross where we see forgiveness from that. Jesus looks upon it and says, forgive them all. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But at resurrection, we receive the new king that we have been promised. That is where we find our new king. All right? Um, at resurrection. That is what we see. Um, it's, and we're going to see this more in the coming months as we wrap up Matthew. Um, um, in, I have one more sermon in Matthew. We're going to wrap that up. And then we're going we're gonna to do some theology to set us up for this. We're going to do some Trinitarian theology. We're going we're to talk about how to read the Bible. And then we're going to talk about, we're going to launch into the book of Acts. And we're going to see God's plan for bringing actual hope to this world through forming a brand new people in this world. By the way, it's you. That's who he's forming, okay? But right now, we're gonna respond to all this with communion. I'm gonna end on a high note here. Uh, let's, uh, let's end with communion. Now, um, our, our communion servers, you guys can take the elements and spread around the room. And we're not gonna, after communion, um, we're not gonna come back and do another song. I want you guys to just be, if you need to spend time in prayer, that's fine. Prayer room's out there to the right. There'll be somebody there um, to pray over you and with you. If you need to spend time in small groups, whatever, in prayer and confession, Take care of it. Do it. Um, if you just need to spend some time connecting with each other again, um, that's all well and good. Um, but uh, after communion, I'm just going to give you that time to be. We're not singing any more songs. Um, but however, we will have our house church leaders set up around the room if you'd like to talk to them and get to know some house church leaders and get involved in, in community and in these sort of, sort of little rogue kingdom movements that we're, that we're uh, planting here. Okay, so um, I'll pray. And then we'll go to communion, shall we? Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask as we go now to communion that we would recognize your body broken for us. We would recognize your blood poured out for us um, as the revelation that we have followed the wrong kings, as the revelation that we have gone astray. And I pray that we would come to the table today, whoever we are, whatever we bring to it, we all bring different levels of holiness and, and sin and 
and whatever, but we all come and we all receive the same thing because we've all sinned, we've all fallen short. And I pray that your grace would wash over us and we would feel renewed and restored. I pray that we would feel the privilege of being welcomed to your table. Give us our, a new identity. Replace all the ways that we, we think of ourselves with the ways that you think of us. Remind us of your faithfulness to us. Let us respond by being faithful to each other and to you. Thank you, Father. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Take some time and talk to Jesus.